Welcome to this bonus episode of the Maine Science Podcast. I'm Kate Dickerson. This episode is an audio recording of our March 10th, 2021 online forum, How Maine Companies Stepped Up, Round 1, Biological Sciences. In this forum, we heard from three different Maine organizations who are deeply involved in addressing COVID-19. Norman Moore from Abbott, Oliver de Burkhorst representing IDEX, and Richard Lissier from the Jackson Laboratory all shared how they responded to the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks to our online forum sponsors, the Bioscience Association of Maine and the Jackson Laboratory, and media sponsor Maine Public for supporting the Maine Science Festival and these forums. One note, while we've edited for audio, if you'd like to get the full experience of the forum, you can find the video recording on the Maine Science Festival YouTube channel. All right, we are just about at one o'clock. Welcome to this uh, online Maine Science Festival session. My name is Kate Dickerson and I am the founder and director of the Maine Science Festival. The Maine Science Festival is a celebration of the science and engineering and innovation and technology that happens in Maine. In the before times, we did it as a big, huge five-day festival. Uh, and currently with the pandemic, we are doing online sessions. Um, and I am delighted to be able to have a session this week looking at uh, how Maine's companies stepped up, specifically Maine's biological sciences companies. We have three speakers today. I'm going to introduce them right, uh, right before they speak. And uh, this session would not be possible without the support of the Biosciences Association of Maine, the Jackson Laboratory, and Maine Public, all of whom have uh, helped us pull this together and make sure that we can make this run. So without any further ado, I'm going to go right to our first speaker. It's Oliver de Buchhorst from IDEX Laboratory. Oliver has been a senior vice president at IDEX since March 2015, and he oversees the company's water, livestock, poultry, dairy, and opti medical systems of the business. He's been described to me as the person to talk about IDEX's work in the testing fields. So, um, so I'm delighted to hand him the reins and let us let him tell us how IDEX has stepped up in this pandemic time. One quick note, if you have questions that you would like to ask any of our panelists, please put them in the Q&A. We're gonna do a big Q&A session at the end after everybody speaks because their sessions uh, flow right together. All right, Oliver, it is all yours. First of all, thank you so much for the uh, invitation. As I may have mentioned to you, I am a political scientist by training, so I don't usually get invited to these festivals, but uh, certainly I should, uh, I should uh, be paying a lot of attention. Uh, you know, it's been my pleasure to work with uh, IDEX for 17 years now, uh, almost to the day. And for those of you who aren't familiar with IDEX, I thought I would just quickly run through some background on the company to kind of set the stage for how IDEX responded uh, when, the pandemic, when the pandemic started. So IDEX was started in early 80s in, uh, in Portland, at 4th Street, I believe, and uh, with a few employees uh, who felt there would be a benefit for animal health if more advanced diagnostics and software capabilities were, were taken from, let's say, under other industries and to the benefit of, of animals. And since then, we've grown. Uh, we're now uh, a global diagnostics company. We're still headquartered in Maine and a proud Maine company. We have uh, 9,200 uh, employees worldwide, but every time I present this slide, I'm, I'm behind. So we're growing, uh, growing quite, quite rapidly. We really operate four businesses. So one, uh, the, most, the, the biggest business in IDEX portfolio is our companion animal group business. And we provide solutions to veterinary practices. So if you have 
a dog or a cat or other pet and you've brought your animal to, to a veterinary practice, you're more likely than not to have used an IDEX test result to determine uh, what, if anything, may be wrong with your animal or your, your family member. And your veterinary practice is also likely to have used some of our products to schedule your visit, to capture electronic medical record, and to really provide the best service the veterinarian can for, for you as a pet owner. And what's relevant for our response to COVID is that we operate 80 laboratories worldwide. We're one of the few truly global laboratory networks uh, in, any, in any industry. And these 80 laboratories worldwide provide a full scale of, of services, including real-time PCR, uh, antigen, and antibody testing. We also offer various diagnostic capabilities to the veterinary practice so that while you wait uh, in 20 minutes, your basic hematology, chemistry, and other parameters can be tested. And while you're still at the vet clinic, you can have a conversation with the vet about what follow-up is needed with, uh, with, the, uh, with your, your family member, the pet. And this too was later deployed to the benefit of, of the pandemic. Now, the livestock division uh, is another part of IDEX, and we provide livestock testing kits to large laboratories that screen herds or flocks for various infectious diseases. And we provide both real-time PCR test kits um, as well as immunoassays and other tests with the goal of helping livestock health improve and with that improve productivity and reduce the impact on, of the on the environment. And finally, if you drink water, you have likely drunk some water that is tested with IDEX products. Um, we provide tests that are used for uh, drinking water and wastewater testing as well as, as, well as environmental waters. Um, and more than two and a half billion people a day drink water that has been tested in one way or another with an IDEX, IDEX product. And we're also really proud that we, uh, we have a customer outside the earth too, namely the International Space Station also uses our microbiological tests. And so these three divisions, plus our small human diagnostics uh, division, um, were all faced with, of course, the pandemic early last year. So how did we, how did we respond? The various divisions at IDEX, or various businesses at IDEX have different but complementary uh, capabilities. So, so our companion animal group operates those 80 laboratories. So uh, they also develop real-time PCR tests quickly for use in our own laboratories. The livestock division has a capability of manufacturing several million tests per month of real-time PCR tests and also designing really robust tests that are used in screening laboratories worldwide. The water division, like I mentioned, has expertise in testing wastewaters. And then our human diagnostics business has expertise in getting tests approved. So what we did, and it really was by happenstance that I walked when we're still allowed to go to our offices, I walked by our R&D team and our lead designer for livestock tests uh, happened to be there. And I asked him, so how difficult would it be for us to develop a real-time PCR test? Because our colleagues in China were clamoring for one whether we could develop a real-time PCR test. And uh, my uh, lead designer said that wouldn't be a problem at all. Um, and so in rapid succession, uh, IDEX was able to first launch a test for pets uh, in our own laboratories. And this was important because as you may remember, there were some rumors out there that you could get COVID from pets. And that would have been really bad news for our customers for pet owners, for families, um, and, and it wasn't in fact true. So by launching this test, we were able 
to educate veterinarians and pet owners that there was very, very limited uh, risk there. We also then, and I think it took us seven weeks from beginning of design to launch of a real-time PCR test for humans, a similar design. And uh, we were able to scale up manufacturing very, very rapidly with the help of some, some partners, including Thermo Fisher and others, we were able to launch that test quickly. It was very difficult to develop a test uh, when you couldn't travel. And uh, I still remember we had a, an IDEX employee volunteer to take the very first test from Maine uh, on the plane to Ireland to our very first customer. And then he flew right back uh, because only hand delivery of the test was, was possible uh, at the time. But we launched the test and we launched the test and it was used uh, in the beginning mostly by veterinary diagnostic laboratories who were asked to repurpose their operations for human COVID testing. So here we had customers that would buy tests for us for like BSE, for example, or, or swine influenza or other livestock diseases who've been asked to test for uh, to test human samples for real time uh, with real time PCR tests for SARS CoV two, and those were our initial customers. But then I had an opportunity to talk to Commissioner Lambrew and Dr. Shaw here in Maine, and not only offer them you know the manufacturing capacity, which if you remember back in April May last year there was a real shortage of tests and all the manufacturers were scaling up rapidly. Well, I was able to offer on behalf of uh, IDEX uh, basically the, the capacity that was needed. Uh, by the state of Maine. But then we got to talking. And when I mentioned that IDEX runs labs and operates labs, um, we then quickly developed a partnership whereby IDEX set up a dedicated COVID-19 laboratory in Augusta, Maine, uh, that more than quadrupled the capacity of the state to test for, for this virus. Uh, in July of last year, we then also launched a test for detecting SARS-CoV-2 in wastewater. And interestingly, uh, the virus appears in wastewater before symptoms appear in humans. So by, the, by screening wastewaters, you can get a, an early idea of, of whether there is a, a, an outbreak. And so really combining these four divisions capabilities, uh, we were able to uh, set up what you see here is our, is a, what we lovingly call our trailer, uh, but it's the, uh, the IDEX operated uh, COVID-19 testing laboratory under the auspices of the Heddle Lab here in Maine and the CDC. And um, this capacity that we provided to the state of Maine really helped the state speed up its reopening plan and has been a great partnership uh, between uh, our company and, uh, and the state of Maine. So with that, let me pause and um, see if there's any questions or we'll take them, I guess, at the end, uh, Kate, to you. Uh, I, yeah, we're gonna take them at the end, so. Um... We'll bounce to our next uh, speaker. Next up, we have Dr. Norman Moore. And uh, Norm is the Global Director of Scientific Affairs for the Rapid Diagnostic Division of Abbott. In 2019, he received Ab Abbott's Valvilleur Fellowship Award. I hope I pronounced that right, Norm, for lifetime achievement in science. Um, and as an aside, I think uh, anyone who can get a Lifetime Achievement Award in anything, it's pretty awesome. But to get it for science is one of the most inspiring things I've heard and, you know, something that we can all reach for, I think. Uh, Norm has eight U.S. patents and 31 non-U.S. patents. And he's, uh, you know, presented many, many times on uh, different types of testing for infectious diseases. I am delighted to have uh, Norm with us and have him talk about uh, what Abbott did with their pandemic response. So Norm, I will pass the, the baton to you. 
Awesome. Thank you all. And I, I, I'm very excited to be here. It's, it's so exciting to see amazingly how big Maine has been with this whole pandemic. It, it's absolutely phenomenal from the tests we make. And you heard of IDEX, you're going to hear about Abbott and even the swabs. I mean, Puritan is one of the biggest swab companies in the world. And we've all been involved very, very dramatically. So just to kind of start, I want to talk a little bit about Abbott. Abbott was just named, I think it was Fortune Magazine that named it one of the top 50 most admired countries in the entire world. And that's up there with, you know, Apple and, and, and Amazon and all those other companies. So it's been a very, very difficult, exciting year. We have over 100,000 people where, you know, many, many, many countries, you know, uh, 34.6, whatever, billion in sales. And there's a ton of divisions. And I, I really won't go through them all from all of our nutritional to lab-based what we really want to talk about here is, you know, what we've done in Maine. And I'll say this. I came to Maine about 26 years ago to work for a small company called uh, Binex at the time. And Binex was this tiny little company. We were actually centered in this old bakery. And during the hottest parts of the summer, you could actually even see, you know, molasses still seeping up from some of the floor floorboards. So, that's the history that we came from. And believe it or not, that little tiny thing was able to really transform a lot of rapid diagnostics as we know it. We made one of our early splashes with some of our pneumonia tests where we actually developed ways to find out what type of pneumonia you had from urine. And that all of a sudden, all a person peeing in a cup, in 15 minutes, you could know what type of antibiotic to give that person. It became a game changer. And because of that, it would put in all of the infectious disease guidelines throughout the world. So it was an exciting time where, you know, if I went to Chile or if I went to somewhere else, you could walk into the laboratory and see the main made product right on those shelves. And, you know, one of the things that we came out with afterwards was influenza testing. And at the time, there really weren't good treatments for influenza. So, you know, we didn't know if that would be a commercial success or not. And believe it or not, that really took off as, you know, that changed how everybody tested, and it became the number one test throughout the entire world for influenza, and it became the standard where people were testing for influenza because they knew that it was infectious and there were things you needed to do. The treatment was only good for the first 48 hours, so we really kind of changed things with all these tests. You know, for so, so long, it was if you were sick, you went to the hospital, and quite often you had to sit for hours on end trying to get those lab results back. And by putting these tests out, really kind of embracing point of care, we opened up where a lot of this testing would be. So rather than now going there, you could go to the doctor's office, the urgent care clinics. You know, even now we're going into the pharmacies. So being things closer to the patient, you know, you really got a lot better results because you didn't have, without waiting, you knew exactly what it was and you could treat that much more accordingly. So. I'm going to take a step back and say, okay, you know, last year, it was an incredible year for everybody. I mean, it was, it was something that in the end, I think, we're, you know, the companies here will be very, very proud of that we made a difference, not only US, but globally. You know, we, we had this outbreak happen, you know, we saw the cases of, China, uh, of uh, COVID-19 in China, and we really didn't know what was going to happen. As a microbiologist, we were keeping our eyes on it. Still back then, we weren't fully aware that it was going to do to change everybody's lives. As things started to come over, Italy hit up. We knew that it was going to hit the United States. And so Abbott started jumping right in. And it was utterly amazing that by March, we had launched a few tests. We had launched a big lab-based analyzers. 
but the other thing we launched was a thing called ID Now, and what that is is it's molecular testing. It's it's akin to PCR, but it uses one temperature, and it's a small little machine that can be brought and get that lab quality result wherever that instrument goes. So what we did with that ID Now is all of a sudden people were taking that and putting it in tents drive-throughs for testing because one of the big issues what you saw with COVID is this is highly, highly infectious. And so the idea of bringing somebody in that could be infectious into a hospital where they may be sitting next to a chemotherapy patient, a geriatric patient, exposing them was really too big a risk. And so by changing everything, by bringing that molecular-based testing to all of these unique sites, it was phenomenal. and, And it was something that really changed a lot of things. So Abbott continued pushing, and they came out with uh, another lab-based analyzer architect in April. In May, we came out with more base tests. But one of the unique unique things here, again, talking about Abbott, talking about some of the unique tests that we did, and just kind of showing you the history of what happened. So we had that molecular test. What one of the big things is to reopen the country, we need, needed to make it far more available to everybody. We needed needed to democratize it. We needed to be able to give it to schools and a lot of other places. So we took that technology, that basic influenza test that we've been making for 25 years, and we started making these cards. And these cards all of a sudden were winning awards because you were able now to do testing everywhere. And we're even now doing testing in the home where you can actually have this sent to your home, proctored on a screen and be able to get that result. So when it comes to this right now, we have seen that now Binax now test it was stunning we made a, an entire brand new factory in west maine from the ground up it was one of those wild bets that abbott made that we couldn't wait to see if we could make a test and then make a factory we actually had to make a factory before we even started the r&d so that we could actually have them all come together at the end so here we have this brand new factory in westbrook it took four months to make and now it's producing 50 million tests per month and we're even going beyond that. So it's been a phenomenal culture change. And it's, I mean, I don't want to say that Maine can do attitude. But really, a lot of it has been there that we've been able to do a lot. And I got to say, the Abbott resources have really been able to be there so we could make, take these risks. But we're seeing this in nursing homes and schools and return to the workplace. So not to kind of belabor anything, and I won't do this to you guys, but just to kind of say... You take these simple little swabs. I won't stick this up my nose to show you guys. Even kind of putting it right into this device. You add some drops, you close it, and you've got the answer wherever you are, the school and all that within 15 minutes. So it's been very, very helpful to try to get some normalcy back as soon as humanly possible. So with that, again, thank you to Maine for what you've really allowed us to do. It's been a very exciting place. We're really happy to be in Maine. Norm, that was great. Thank you. We're going to go right to uh, Dr. Richard Lussier. Rich has 30, he's at Jackson Laboratory. He has 30 years of experience supporting using and commercializing biotechnology. And he was one of the very, he used one of the very first automated DNA sequencing systems in the world as part of his research while a PhD student at the University of Vermont, uh, which I think, you know, it's, it's, a really good example of the ways that uh, biotechnology and, and bioscience and, and have really grown in leaps and bounds in the last 20 or 30 years. It's, it's a whole different world. Um, and then he spent 15 years with much of that t- uh, abroad once he got his PhD, much of that time in Asia and got back just in time to see the Red Sox win their first World Series 
championship in 86, beating the, the curse of the Bambino once and for all. Um, and as a longtime Mets fan, I can appreciate uh, how much that was enjoyable for him and was personally happy it didn't happen in 1986. So my apologies for that. Not really. Uh, for the past four years, <laughs> Rich has been the clinics genomics program director at the Jackson Laboratory, which includes managing the Jackson Clinical Laboratory. And I'm going to let him explain what all of that means. Um, but one, one bit of information that I find really interesting is that the clinical laboratory has delivered over 1.2 million COVID test results since March of 2020. Uh, so that is an extraordinary number for something that a year ago from today, we didn't even have a test for really. So Rich, I will let you take over and we will jump right in. Okay, so um, I um, will apologize because I didn't prepare a uh, slide on the background for Jackson Laboratory, but I'll just talk to it very quickly. So Jackson Laboratory was founded in 1929, so 92 years ago, with the sole uh, mission of using mouse as a model organism to study human disease. And initially, that disease was cancer. Uh, over the years, the, uh, the programs have been expanded so that the mouse is used in, as a model for many human disease, including inherited diseases, uh, lifestyle diseases, and everything in between. And in fact, Jackson Laboratory has a biorepository or mouse repository system that presently has somewhere on the order of about 12,000 different mouse models that have been developed over the years, both at Jackson Laboratory as well as by collaborators. So it's a, a tremendous resource, resource in, in the world of mouse uh, genetics as well as mouse models for human disease. There are 65 faculty members on three different campuses of Jackson Laboratory in Bar Harbor, which is the main location that we have, also in Farmington, Connecticut, and in Sacramento, California. It's an NCI-designated cancer center, and uh, as such, our interest in cancer led to the creation of what is called a CLIA laboratory at Jackson. And what is a CLIA laboratory? It's a laboratory that's organized under the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments uh, of 1988. And uh, this was a, a federal or uh, actually a, a program that was enacted by Congress in response to concerns over some test inaccuracies uh, prior to, to the enactment of the CLIA uh, amendments. And at the time, the regulation for laboratories in the United States was, was limited to hospital laboratories and independent laboratories, but most of other laboratories that could at the time deliver clinical results were not at all regulated. So under CLIA, a facility that performs tests on humans specifically for purposes of diagnosis or for determining treatment courses for disease or for the prevention of disease are now regulated under the CLIA uh, amendments or the, the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments. And in, since 1988, this has been administered by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid in close collaboration with the FDA as well as the CDC. So 
the regulations kind of set a complexity level of what the laboratory is engaged in, whether the complexity is very low of the tests that they perform, in which case you could be waived, a moderate complexity test or a high complexity test. And uh, each of those have definitions and, and requirements. And really what the goal here was is to establish a set of rules that would be applied to all laboratories across the country that are performing sem similar types of tests and at similar levels of complexity. Our laboratory at JAX is a high complexity laboratory. And uh, one of the, the things that sets apart a CLIA laboratory from just a standard clinical laboratory is the fact that uh, a CLIA lab has a process or can follow a process to develop its own test called an LDT or laboratory developed test. So since CLIA laboratories can uh, develop their own tests, it means that they can offer tests that are not otherwise commercially available. So a test that wouldn't be developed by IDEX or Abbott because perhaps um, the market is very small for that test, it's very narrow, or perhaps the test is developed because there's a particular specialty in the uh, organization that, um, that would bring some expertise to that type of testing. So that's one of the distinctions. And uh, the other, again, based on the uh, development of the, the laboratory-developed tests, allows also to react very quickly in something like a COVID-19 pandemic. So JAX's first COVID-19 test that was developed about a year ago was an LDT. We've since moved uh, over to an FDA-approved uh, uh, test under the uh, emergency use program. But the very first test that we uh, developed was, was uh, actually an LDT. Just to give you a sense of the, the history of the CLIA laboratory at Jackson, we started out in 2015 by getting our CLIA and College of American Pathology certification. In 2016, we started a collaboration with Alphon Foundation that was continued last year for the testing of cancer patients in the state of Maine, where we actually look at the tumor and are able to profile it. In those 36 months, we did about 2,200 cancer tests. In March of last year, we, we launched the COVID test. And since then, we've actually delivered 1.3 million results uh, in, in the 12 months since uh, just about since uh, this date uh, a year ago. So the subject of this talk is how JAX was able to step up. So I've just put a few things down here uh, for purposes of discussion. So one of the areas that um, we have contributed in the research field is by developing a transgenic mouse model. So that means that it's a mouse that has some human gene, and specifically the human gene that it includes is for the receptor that the SARS-CoV-2 virus binds to in humans, uh, which is the ACE2 site. So the uh, ACE2 receptor is where the, the SARS virus uh, binds. And and uh, one of the very first things that we developed was a transgenic mouse to be able to, to have a platform by which 
researchers could uh, could look at the the way that the virus gets into cells and what happens in those cells once the virus enters. So um, that's the extent of what I know about mice. And and uh, uh, as much as I am a JAX uh, employee, a proud JAX employee, that's unfortunately about the, the level of my expertise there. But my area of focus being in the CLIA laboratory and as a timeline further to the slide that I just showed, we, we means a small group of people, four or five people, met, of course, at 5 p.m. on a Friday afternoon uh, last March. And we sort of decided at that point that we wanted to do something to help in this pandemic beyond what we could do to support researchers in the field. So on that date, we decided uh, that we were going to look into what we could do, put the CLIA lab to use. Between the 6th of March and the 24th of March was a frenzy of activity to develop, validate, and get a virology license for our CLIA laboratory, which previous to the 20th of March didn't have one. And then we, uh, we set up a, a test that was able to do 150 per day. And we scaled that capability or that capacity up to essentially 12,000 tests per day in about a four month period of time. We've delivered 35,000 tests to the University of Maine test results, about 6,000 test results to Maine Maritime Academy over that period. What that allowed for is the safe return to on-campus learning or in the case of Maine Maritime Academy, on-ship learning. Um, and it allowed some of the seniors from Maine Maritime Academy to finish their final cruise uh, by being cleared and, and free of COVID before they boarded the ship. So very proud of that. Over 100,000 of the 1.3 million tests have been reported to the state of Maine, to our hospital partners, nursing facilities, schools, and workplaces, including the Jackson Laboratory. And we've also employed uh, roughly about 80 new employees, people working in the, in the COVID or in the virology laboratory uh, since we established the test a year ago. And many of those folks are temporary staff, but still it's uh, 80 people who may have uh, otherwise found it challenging to, to land a job in the midst of a pandemic. This is just a, a quick view of some of the some of the laboratory and what you can see in the top left panel are a couple of the four Hamilton robots that actually five Hamilton robots that we have. Those are where the automated test process takes place. That was uh, the piece of, of, of uh, the laboratory of those four or five components allowed us to scale from 150 tests a day up to greater than 10,000 a day. Uh, the top right is just a, a very simple plot of the number of tests delivered on a daily basis going back to March of last year. And you can see how that scale up happened. And uh, in fact, sort of in that December and January timeframe is where we were seeing the highest demand in terms of, of tests per day. It's actually off scale at about 12,000 a day is what we were reporting. And then the bottom right are uh, the sequencers that we use in a, in a new area that we've been focusing lately, 
and you probably have heard a lot or seen a lot on the news or read in the papers about different strains of the virus that are popping up. And the definitive way to identify the strain of, uh, of the SARS-CoV-2 virus that is presently infecting folks is to take a sample of that virus and to sequence its entire genetic code from start to end. And the instruments that are used for that are on the bottom right. And this allows us to identify the specific variants and strains that are present in Maine and the other 49 states that we have been uh, serving through our, our FLEA laboratory. We've literally reported cases to all 50 states in the course of uh, the pandemic going back to, to last March. So that is how JAX has contributed to the, um, to the pandemic in, in at least in a, uh, in a small way, uh, explaining how we've, we've contributed. And uh, I'll stop there. Thank you. That was great, Rich. Thank you. We will jump to questions and answers, Q&A. And uh, to anyone who's uh, with us, please feel free to throw them in the in the Q&A, I will get to them. Um, I'm going to start off, I'm kind of, my mind is, um, it's kind of boggling to me the, 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 how big the scale up was for all, all three companies, right? It's, it's kind of an extraordinary feat of, I, I, I want to say engineering, but I know that that's not it. So I, I think if it's at all possible for you to explain how, <laughs> how you were able to do it in, in, in 24 hours a day, um, it, maybe that's too much to ask, but if, if you know, the, you know uh, Rich, you had a, a big leap up and you said it was the robots that helped you scale up the, uh, the testing itself, but it, it couldn't have just been the robots. There had to be other facets to it. So we can start with you, Rich, and then we'll just kind of go around the circle there. Yeah, um, you know, I, I remember back in literally a year ago in March when we were uh, going through this and and I've, I've had the luck in my career of having been involved in, in some pretty significant product introductions and, and, uh, and technology innovations. And I mentioned to the folks that were the core, roughly dozen or so people that were the core of the CLIA lab prior to COVID-19, uh, that when you sit back and look at this, sometimes later in your lifetime. And honestly, these folks are 20 something. Uh, so it, it is, uh, you know, in their future, uh, as opposed to for me. But um, when I, I said, you know, you'll sit back and look at this time in amazement at what you were able to achieve. And now a year on, uh, that has come to fruition. And uh, you're right, it is the people. And, and it was very largely the people. Um, the people had to research the technologies that could be applied uh, from what was available. So it's not just, you know, what's the best one to apply? It's what is the best one that's available to apply and to adapt it. Uh, and that's really the people who put the thought and energy into that. We had folks who were working 300 hours a month in uh, March and April to, to get this up and running and, and uh, going. The automation certainly helped. Um, and as I said, we were able to identify stuff that was available and that we could put to use 
but it was really the, the people factor and, and the fact that these folks just were selfless in the amount of hours that they were willing to spend. They knew what was at the other end. Uh, they knew what they were doing was making a difference. And, and I think that was really what uh, was the true motivator. I'm seeing a lot of head nodding from Oliver and, and Norm. Um, I'll let you guys, you both jump in with any additional comments. Well, I, I concur completely with what Rich was just saying. So it, it really was the people factor. You know, as leaders, we can help provide some focus and, and some priorities, but in, especially at the beginning of this pandemic, um, everybody was doing this in addition to their day job. You know, and um, we were worried about our day jobs also because at the beginning, you know, veterinary clinics were closing and livestock laboratories weren't ordering tests. And so, um, you know, that turned around. Uh, but in, in, in the meantime, uh, a lot of people jumped on this opportunity to do something for our community. It was very much driven by, you know, we're a diagnostics company. We should be able to help somehow. And what is that way? And, um, you know, this was a global initiative across many business units that that helped us uh, scale up our manufacturing in the beginning of just the test kits. Um, and, uh, you know, we were just, I think, in many ways fortunate that we had these combination of skills and, and, a, and a good network of people that decided to put them all together to do something. Um, couldn't have, it's really all been a people, people driven uh, more than anything else uh, effort for, for IDEX. Not to beat a dead horse, but people think is really been phenomenal. We, we set up two R&D groups, uh, Stacey Huth and Steve Kovacs, and literally they had two separate groups going literally 24 hours a day where, you know, you have a night shift, morning shift, you know, and so the R&D people were working that much. I got a call and I've been here 25 years and they said, if you don't get your stuff out of the office, it's gone because they just bulldozed the, all the offices because it was all production. And, and we had to realize that it was, in some ways, I'm less important than the production person that's got to get those tests out to the medical community. I, I was, I, I don't want to almost sound like there's tears in my eyes, but we all worked, you know, throughout. I mean, it was, there were no things as weekends. I mean, it was, it was everything because we knew that we were front lines for trying to get to save lives. I mean, that, that sounds a little too grandiose, but it really was to that point. And, 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 for the other companies here as well. We all, it's something Maine should be proud of. So I, I want to, I've heard from a number of folks that the obstacles weren't just, you know, not enough hours in the day and, and doing multiple jobs, but uh, even the supplies that, that you all had to rely on, reagents, and how do you develop a test if you don't even know you have the right materials? And how do you even know how to start? And and you each touched on this a little bit. You know, Oliver, you said you're a diagnostic company. There must be something we can do. And and Rich, you said, they, you know, you have developed, Jax has developed their own test, the laboratory test. And Norm, you know, Abbott has been doing tests forever. But how do you how do you both develop something that for something that has never been seen before? And then how do you make sure you have the supply from other places to get that test so that even once you produce it, it's useful? And And I'll... I don't know who to start with. I, I want to hear from all three of you. I imagine that the answers are somewhat similar and yet different. How about this time? We'll start with Oliver. Thank you. Yes. So, you know, this is where as an organization, you rely on everything you've done before the pandemic hits. So we had partnerships, longstanding partnerships that we relied on quite heavily. Uh, and our supply chain team put in a lot of hours to find simple things like pipette tips, 
uh, were in short supply. And you can see, I see, uh, Rich, you had maybe the same uh, same challenge as we did. Um, you know, uh, RNA master mix, uh, just all these, these components that we use in our products every day became rapidly in short supply at the beginning. So, so working with our supply network, and we have a dedicated team of professionals who, who work on this with us, and our partners, we have solidified our partnerships through this or uh, this effort as well. And, and you know, that, that really relies on what you do how prepared were you to, to take advantage or to react to a certain opportunity? And so we're, we're very happy that all our partners stepped up with us to try to combine. Um, and then we forged some new partnerships too, right? So, so with the state of Maine, for example, um, and with, with other, other uh, entities that, that you, you can't do it alone. And so it was very much a, a group effort, I think, for us to be able to meet the demand that, that something was upon us. Norm, I'll hand it to you. State of Maine National. Walking to our suppliers and saying, okay, if it takes you three months, we're going to need it literally in 10 days. I mean, it, it was something that, and, and it, was, it was a kind of a question of saying, okay, to these suppliers, you know, if they said, well, it can't be done, well, what part can't be done? And working with them to, to make these things happen, I, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, the permits that Maine would help get to just even ship things down to build these new, new facilities, um, industry, government, Everybody stepped up. It, it was such a partnership to get this done. I'm very, very proud of everybody. And Rich? Yeah, I mean, we we um, we were were lucky in the sense with it's not like uh, in the case of Norm and, and Abbott where they invented a a, a nice you know uh, packet test uh, that that you can you can conduct. We didn't have to invent anything. The, the technologies that we were using that are available from IDEX and, and uh, Abbott and others were sort of off the shelf for us at, at the beginning. So we were able to, to put things together, but the supply chain absolutely was a challenge, especially in the scale up, as you would imagine. And, you know, Oliver hit on my uh, one nightmare, which was running out of pipette tips for the automation. Uh, and we were, we were going through I, I don't actually recall the number, but we were going through about a pallet of tips a week. So just to, to sort of put that in some perspective, a pallet is, uh, you know how big a pallet is, and it's piled high with cases of tips. And we were going through a pallet a week, uh, actually more than that uh, during the, the peak of it. And, um, you know, you just, uh, you, you just, get overwhelmed by the fact that you land, uh, you know, these, these, uh, these suppliers and you rely on your suppliers, but you don't really think very often that their supply chain also is being impacted and it goes way down the chain. So uh, there was for a while a shortage of uh, filters that go into the tips of pipettes to keep them from from getting contaminated. Um, and uh, there was a worldwide shortage of those, which kind of rippled through the pipettes themselves, the pipette tips themselves. Um, and it was just, uh, it was a real challenge to try and keep on top of it. Uh, but I, I'll, I'll agree with my colleagues that uh, people stepped up, not only um, from, from Jack's obviously, but from our suppliers, they knew how important what they were doing was uh, as well. And, and uh, you know, everybody was bending over backwards to make sure that we all got through this together. So I'll go to a, 
a similar question, I guess, or, or uh, with all that you, your three companies have accomplished in the last year, um, I'm, I don't think anybody sat down last February and said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do a million plus tests and, <laughs> and this is how we're going to do it. What do you think is, was the hardest thing? What was the hardest thing that you haven't already mentioned that you had to get through? And what do you think, based on all that you've learned in the last year, you'll continue to take with you as you move on and things settle down from this and we go on to whatever the next step of our lives look like? So it's a you know super easy question for all of you. Really piece of cake. Um, <laughs> and uh, Norm, since I haven't put you on the spot first, I'll I'll do that to you. So you know what was what was most surprising about what you've accomplished, but what what do you expect that you'll take that you'll take going forward? It's a hard question. I, I think one of the things is just the unending pace. I mean, everything needed to be speeded up like historically we've never ever seen. I mean, to you know. In the old days, you'd have a couple of centrifuges. We had to get by rows and rows of centrifuges, had them set up. So forget weekends, forget nights, you know, to see everybody working that many hours, to see the families. And let's not forget the families that had to give up seeing us to get this done. Um, so, you know, after 12, 14 hour days, just sitting on the couch trying to put coherent thoughts together was was a difficult thing. It, it was I mean, I know I keep saying family, but just we had to rely on each other. And it was, wow, uh, every every production worker, and, and thank God for those production workers, you know, just all the different languages that had to come in, get them all making this to make sure that we could make it in the highest quality. It's I'm rambling right now, but there's so many people to thank. It's just amazing. I'll punt to you, Oliver. I, I would I would echo many of Norm's uh, Nor Norm's comments. It, it, when we started the laboratory in Augusta, um, what, what ended up being a very big challenge is just recruiting, mm -hmm. uh, finding uh, technicians who had the right CLIA uh, uh, backgrounds, and we recruited from all over the United States to find uh, laboratory technicians. And it's interesting; I really love coming to Maine. So that's good, um, and that certainly helped. But that was a that was a very significant challenge. The other very significant challenge is, you know, when when you're making maybe tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of something, and now you have to make millions of something else uh, of the same thing. Um, you know, that's going to benefit us benefit us in the future. We're now able to react even more quickly to African swine fever because we have COVID nineteen. But um, that certainly was a, a very big challenge for our manufacturing and supply chain supply chain teams who are now have forged even closer bonds and uh, are able to react to, uh, to to outbreaks of other diseases in the future, I think, as well. So there's a whole series of things where just the scaling up, just by doing something 100 times bigger or 1,000 times bigger than you used to do, uh, where you're really pressure testing the systems and the processes you have as an organization. And we've made some adjustments and I think it's going to do, you know, it's going to benefit us going forward. I think it's the team, you know, the, the interpersonal relationships that have been built as we go through this, that, that will be the most enduring part of this though. And I think that um, it's really helped the entire IDEX team to have been part of this small effort because there were many other things we were doing at the same time, of course. Um, but I think it's, it really um, you know, was, 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 was good for employee engagement just generally. Rich, do you have anything else to add to that? Um, you know, just uh, along the lines of, of the lasting lessons is, you know, probably the, pr 
primary one that I, I think of all the time is that you need to be prepared for something like this to happen again. And you don't know when it'll be, of course, and you don't know what it will be. But um, the lessons learned from this really put us in a pretty good position to be able to react quickly the next time. We all hope there isn't one, but the reality is there probably will be one. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that the lessons learned are really applied to how you'll be able to react the next time something unexpected comes up. So I want to circle back. Uh, I, I made a couple of notes as you all were speaking. And, and one of the ones that I think there's been so many things that have happened in the last year that we've forgotten about just because we've been overwhelmed with information, right? So it's actually easy for me to forget that that Abbott came out with a 15-minute test, which it's ridiculous, right? Because in any other year, that would be that would be the big, huge, like, you know, do the test, grab a cup of coffee, get the result, then you can go to work or not, right? And and then the wastewater test, um, and then the number of tests that, that Jackson has run through. So I'm not entirely sure. I guess my question here is, if you could explain each of you just a little bit more detail on those bits of pieces. So, so the IDEX wastewater, right? We'd, we've forgotten about, and I'll circle back and remind all of you, the wastewater testing has been huge. And, and I remember there being a lot of controversy when it first came out that people were like, oh, really, come on, you're going to test wastewater and it's going to show you, and it has. So I'm wondering how much IDEX, I don't want to say played around with it, but how much did you really work to figure that out and then say, yes, this is something that we can do. So I think we, you know, we, we considered options and thought through potential demand, but at the end of the day, it was an unknown. And, and so you have to have a little bit of vision too, and say, we can provide this to our customers. And um, the, we know the technology is, is something we could develop quickly. And then we can support our current customers because that's one of the important things. What were our current customers asking us to do? Right. So when you have the largest BSE lab customer saying we would like a COVID-19 test, that encourages you to then, of course, move forward and, and provide that. Um, or when uh, public utilities are asking for uh, the wastewater test, same thing. So I, I would say speeding up that decision making process and you know managing through some unknowns and with unknowns and still making good decisions was part of the exercise that we had to go through uh, to uh, to be able to launch these tests. Um, but it was you know, IDEX is, is sticks to its knitting. Uh, you know, we're, there's, a, there's a few customer groups that we pro provide tests to. And, um, and so, uh, you know, that, that also somehow limits some, maybe some of the business risks that you take when you, when you start to engage on a new project like this or a new uh, effort like this. So, um, but yes, it was, uh, it was unknown uh, how much wastewater testing would take place. Um, and uh, what was known is that there were studies early on showing that, that uh, it could be, COVID could be detected in wastewater before symptoms uh, showed up. And so that, that was clearly, uh, clearly an important thing for us to try to, to try to advance. That was one of the coolest uh, bits that came out of the information, just as someone who's observing the science from the outside, I thought that part was really just fascinating. Well, the Norm, about wastewater, the, sorry, just the challenge with wastewater is more, what do you do with a positive result? That's really, right. we still get, we still get a lot of questions <laughs> about that. So yeah, it's not, it's not just, you know, then you get it and it's like, huh? Well, yeah. So it's, it's really fascinating. Norm, how about you? I mean, Abbott, I mean, you, it's, it's not an unknown world for Abbott with the testing, but how do you figure out 15 minutes? How do you figure out to make it work? How do you figure out to, to make sure the efficacy is something that people are comfortable with? 
that's going to be one of the challenges. I mean, believe it or not, we actually had two Rose Garden events for both the ID now and Binax now. This little main, you know, it, it was phenomenal. But the luck that we had was that we had a very deep history in respiratory virus testing. So if we didn't have that, I don't think we could have really accommodated this. So we looked at all of our work in influenza and respiratory syncytial virus and said, okay, we're going to have to copy a lot of that. Now, you know, with the molecular tests, we're able to get the sequences to get it done with the, uh, the energy-based tests. We had to, you know, obviously come up with those reagents and the scale of that. So I guess my answer comes down to because of the history we had, we were able to rely on that to really kind of build off that and get something out much quicker. Excellent. Rich, you guys went from 2,200 cancer tests to an extraordinary number of COVID tests. I mean, that numbers, the difference between those numbers is really almost unimaginable. Uh, and I, I realize there are different types of tests, <laughs> I think, but it's still pretty extraordinary. Um, how did you know that you could even do that? Or did you? Well, um, we didn't know that we couldn't, so that <laughs> helps. Um, and uh, um, when you know you, you, when you, when you're not told that you can't do it, I guess you just figure out the way to do it. But uh, the one, the one thing that, um, that really kind of came to light is that none of it would have been possible without a significant investment and, and uh, support from information technologies. I mean, that's really the huge difference when you're doing 50 or 60 tumor profiling tests a month, you can get 50 or 60 test orders on paper, and that's fine. You can't get 10,000 orders on paper in a single day and hope to be able to process it with a normal number of people. So it was really the informatics that allowed us to be able to scale like that. And I think we all knew that that was going to be a factor. I don't think any of us realized how much of a factor the informatics was and how fragmented uh, the tools for doing that are and, and how you had to piece them together, string them together, and then ultimately um, you know, get a system that worked from beginning to end. It's a really good reminder that um not any one organization or any one part of one organization lives in a bubble and there's heavy reliance on other parts of the company. And often I think people forget about information technology and data analysis and deep big data and all of those things. And, and they all work together. Uh, one of the things we try to do at the festival is remind people that no one's in a bubble, right? You all three are in your individual offices, but by no stretch, not one of you have said, oh yeah, I did it all by myself. It's, it's all been completely talking about the teams. And it's very clear to me that the teams have been uh, multifaceted, multidisciplinary and, and vital. That is just about all that we have time for. We do have, I was really happy to have Norm mention Puritan uh, and the swabs because they're actually part of our focus next week, but in a totally different way, we're gonna have them with Chinbro and they're gonna talk about how they built two new bu buildings to manufacture these, these swabs. They are the world leaders in swabs and Chinbro stepped up with them. And they're gonna talk about how they pivoted. And we also have a Mossy Ledge Spirits and they're gonna talk about how they went from uh, spirits to get well, I was going to say how to get people through the pandemic, but that's not entirely clear how they changed what they're making to get people through the pandemic. 
And then we have uh, two folks after that who are going to talk about the following week about public health and vaccine distribution. And then our bonus, the very last week of March, we're going to be talking about what the different vaccines are and how they work. So the next three weeks for the Maine Science Festival are continuing our, our search on COVID and our conversation about COVID. So we can uh, make sure that people recognize just kind of what an extraordinary time we're in right now. I am deeply indebted to the three of you for giving me just a little bit of your time. I, I hope that our listeners have gotten even just a, a little bit more uh, inspired by what we have here in Maine. You, you all kind of fulfilled my role of talking about how amazing Maine is with this stuff, but I really appreciate that it's not just coming from me. Uh, thank you all for the work that you've done. Thank you for losing sleep. Thank you for helping get us through this as much as possible. Um, and I hope in the coming years, we will be able to talk about this uh, and continue to highlight what Maine has done, but more importantly, give you all a chance to get a break and listen about some other science work and just share in the joy of that. The Maine Science Festival has received sponsorship support for this bonus Maine Science Podcast Forum episode from the Bioscience Association of Maine, the Jackson Laboratory, and Maine Public. Maine Science Podcast was recorded at Discovery Studios at the Maine Discovery Museum in Bangor, Maine. The Maine Science Podcast is produced and edited by me, Kate Dickerson. I receive production support from Miranda Bouchard and social media support from Next Media. The variation on the Discover Maine theme was composed and performed by Nick Parker.